A warm Servus from Munich, and welcome everyone to the Hightech Ventures podcast. Our mission at Hightech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The Hightech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved. Entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors. Most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Annalena Schindel, and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today with Max Gulde, CEO and co-founder of Constellar. Hi, Max. How are you doing? Hi, Annalena. Doing well. How are you doing? Great to have you on here. It's been, been a pleasure to watch your journey over the past couple of years. I remember a very first meeting we had at the Fraunhofer EMI three years ago. Um, you full of energy, still a researcher then. Um, now you're the CEO, co-founder of Constellar. I think I've heard you have around 15, 16 employees by now. I've seen you sign the first launch contract to get your payload up on the ISS. You've won the uh, European Space Agency startup competition, closed your first financing round. It's been a pleasure to see everything that's happening. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. I, I mean, you, you kind of initiated because... Um... Yes, we had our first meeting about three years ago, but you also might remember that I've been super skeptic about this whole process. It's like I asking, so isn't there much more risk involved? I'm going to use, uh, am I going to lose my job or not? And uh, I mean, you, you, you kind of initiated this journey. Um, so uh, yeah, thanks right back. <laughs> yeah, I remember being questioned for about an hour. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> one very energetic, Max. <laughs> Let's start by talking about what you do with Constellar. I don't think everyone has already heard about what you're doing. So maybe give us the quick pitch. What is it that you do? Yes, in, instead of pitching, I'm trying to explain it. Um, so what we see is that um, in Earth's observation, there's a lot of data available, but a certain part of the spectrum is not yet commercialized. It's a, it's a green field. And um, this part of the spectrum is actually recording the health of our biosphere, uh, biosphere. So everything which lives on the planet, And that is a great opportunity and it's a great need too, because that's exactly what you need to understand to keep feeding a growing population, to keep feeding a growing planet, if you like. So Constellar will provide fundamental data for agriculture and beyond in order to assess, for example, the, the health of every single crop on the planet. And we're going to do that by a constellation of infrared recording microsatellites. So satellites the size of a shoebox. And they will be like a swarm or a flock of uh, very high altitude birds uh, in low Earth orbit and going to record this every single day. And um, we like to support uh, humankind's food security for the coming years. And in particular, in view of um, upcoming water scarcity, which might be, um, uh, let's say, even stronger, taking into account the not yet fully understood effects of climate change. What exactly is it that you're enabling now? Like what hasn't been possible before? I mean, yes. we've, we have satellites up in the sky already. Um, what are, what's the key thing you're, you're bringing to the picture? Yeah, so 
Um, what we've done over the last uh, 20 or 30 years is focusing all a lot of our space activities towards higher and higher resolution optical imagery. And um, now imagine you're a doctor and you want to assess the health, um, uh, the state of health of, of your patient. And you look at the patient from a 10 meter distance and say, ah, yeah, could be a fever, could be something else. So for some things like seeing if there's, there's acne or something, that, that's a very good way. Uh, but for, for other approaches, that is not an ideal way. So if we would be able to measure the temperature of that, pen, uh, of that patient instead, that is something um, which would be very helpful in that, in that certain use case. And what we are doing is exactly that. Um, right now, there are very, very few temperature measuring satellites, and they all have flaws, not in terms of design, not in terms of how they operate. It's just that the general concept So either they're looking at very small scales, but um, only once a month, or they're looking at the whole Earth a couple of times a day, but then the, the granularity of the data they're delivering is not applicable to single fields. It's more applicable to whole regions. So then you can tell, okay, that's the temperature of Bavaria or of uh, the Netherlands, uh, but that's about it. And we try to um, end this compromise by providing the data at a frequency which is relevant, but also with a resolution which is relevant. And that is something which is currently not existing. And then to, to stay in your picture, who's the, who's the doctor? You talked about food already, so we're, are you talking yes. to farmers directly, or who's who's going to use the data and how? So the farmer might be the, the patient, but actually uh, there's there's a, there's a man in the middle. Um, so we are selling this data not directly to farmers because um, temperature is not something which farmers need. What farmers need is a recommendation telling them, okay, in this part of your field, water this and that amount. Um, in this part of your field, use this and that pesticide. And that's not in the information we can provide. So we are providing the base layer of information and we're providing it to large agri-tech companies. Um, in Germany, there, there are some buyers doing this, buyers doing this, and uh, just to name a few. And they are performing um, operations on this information, also taking into account other information, radar imagery, ground information, weather forecast, um, uh, models about um, uh, the soil, models about the crop type, and feeding this in their models and then giving this information to, to the farmer. So we're kind of a data provider, even though it's a high-level data set, but we are a data provider in the first sense. We're not integrating the value chain all the way to the farm. Great. Now you've already, or I've already mentioned it. There's the the first launch contract. I think you've you've signed. You don't have a satellite in orbit yet. Like, how does one go nope. about such a such a tricky endeavor? I mean, do you have customers already, or like, how do you approach them, telling them, look, <laughs> we're gonna send up satellites soon? <laughs> It, it is it is a difficult business. Um, since I haven't, I don't really have a comparison, so I'm not sure if it's more or less difficult. It'll always be difficult as a founder, I guess. Uh, but what's particularly difficult about the space sector is that obviously, if you want to deliver data, people are happy to take the data, but it takes some time and some investment to actually get into orbit. It's 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 been closer than ever, but it's still kind of costly. So what we what we're already doing is um, building the surrounding infrastructure. So. The, the platforms over which uh, customers will then eventually get our data. And that's something which obviously cannot be built once you are in orbit because then the clock is ticking. So we have to build it right now. And we are simulating data sets already now based on existing um, uh, data, uh, uh, data sets and uh, to, to simulate how it would look like. And I think this week is actually the first week we have one, of the, or one or two of these data sets ready and then handing them out to customers. And they're basically trying to figure out how to best implement this in their existing operational scheme. So yes, we have customers. We even have a couple of paying customers. But um, honestly, compared to the investment volume we need, 
it is nearly negligible. It's more or less trying to, to get a foothold in the market, trying to understand how it operates. And um, as the customer needs to pay something, they're usually also more incentivized to actually get something in return. So usually if you, little, little tip, but maybe that's obvious, if there's some way you can make someone pay even, even a little bit, it's incentivizing to get better feedback. Very cool. It's also cool to hear sort of your own um, experience maybe as a founder and the and the new sort of like playing around with something that's very different from your from your background as a researcher. I imagine I'd I'd love to talk a little bit about your your personal journey of, of becoming an entrepreneur and founder because I think you started out um, studying physics, doing your diploma, PhD, postdoc, like very classic research career. Maybe you want to start by telling us a little bit about what got you into physics in the first place and then what, what made you stay there? <laughs> yes, um, I, like so many others, I think I had the, the trouble of not really knowing what to do after school. So um, there, there were so many interesting things. I thought about archaeology, uh, geology, um, like the, the guy with the hat and the whip, you know, um, all these things that this seemed because I love to travel and I loved other languages and foreign, foreign places. So it was just fantastic. And um, so what in the end did is um, I, I kind of built a, a matrix to see how my skills and weaknesses would match with every existing study uh, uh, subject. And I had a list of more than 300. And during the process, I discovered that, wait a moment, this approach is very much what a physicist would do. And then the, the, the chose, uh, the, basically uh, the, the role was clear. So I enrolled in physics initially with a... Um, geography background still, or um, a focus on geography, then switched to physics um, or to regular physics, experimental physics. Did my, um, I guess my PhD in the end. Uh, did, I was a bit in the, um, uh, bit, uh, I think one and a half years I was studying abroad and then coming back, uh, did my PhD. And it was really exciting. It was exciting. We, we did some fantastic research. Um, I'm still in, in touch with the, with the research group and I'm really proud of what we have achieved. Um, as a team, and we had fantastic publications, but something was missing. I couldn't really point a finger on what was missing. And then only a couple of years later, um, it basically struck me because I did something of which I believed it would really change the world. And there was, we, we had, we built this micros microscope and it had suddenly, again, it was about temporal resolution. We, we increased the temporal resolution of this microscope by a factor of 10,000. And a lot of new applications became possible. And it's such a long way from doing this research to actually some application. And I'm not sure if I would actually be long enough on this planet to, to, to see that this, this application is, is invented. And also we kind of gave away our responsibility. And all these things made me think that maybe there's a, is a better way to do it. So um, knowing the frown of the ecosystem a little bit, my brother used to work there, my dad used to work there. I thought, ah, okay, maybe Fraunhof is the way to go because it's still close enough to university. So I would feel comfortable. Um, on the other hand, it's, I mean, they are basically writing applications, doing research and putting into applications all over the place. So that's the kind of the, the frown of a motto. So yeah, let, why not? And then I thought, okay, what should I do? So uh, microscopes were kind of my thing and, and maybe uh, all, the, all the things around quantum and little particles and all this. But I felt like in order to really do something and have an impact, I would need to reconsider what I'm doing. So I applied for jobs in AI, robotics um, and space. I had absolutely no space background, no AI background, no robotic background. And um, then I was offered uh, the position as kind of the, um, the lead mission scientist for Fraunhofer Space Mission for the Ernst uh, program. It was like, huh, okay, I apparently didn't read my CV. I have absolutely no clue, but um, uh, they, they never took me. So it was, it was interesting. And 
yes, I did reinvent the wheel a couple of times. I did things which are already existing. But a lot of times my feeling was that actually it was a big advantage coming from a different field and looking at these things uh, from a different angle. And um, so all the, all the smaller, larger projects were rather successful. And uh, I, was, I was pretty happy. But again, after some time, I was like, mm, okay, where is this leading to? Are we, really, are we really controlling how this data is used or just doing nice research, which ends up in papers and then ends up in some kind of cupboard? And um, yeah, I, I, was, I, was, I was not convinced that I was, I was staying there for a very long time. It was nice, colleagues, super, and the work environment, awesome, super infrastructure. But again, I was lacking the purpose. And um, I, yeah, th then uh, we, we kind of, uh, I was also not really bored, but let's say the capacity was not fully used. And then we started um, entering a competition just for fun. And there was a competition from Copernicus, so the European um, Earth Observation Program, and they asked for the, for the greatest space mission for the smallest budget, basically. We entered and we're super surprised that a couple of months later, ESA called and said, hey, look, guys, you're in the finals. And um, we could win a million euro. So, and a free launch. So a fantastic opportunity. We were super excited and I was also super surprised. What we didn't realize at this point that we apparently solved a couple of problems along the way um, in this proposal, which hadn't been solved before, but which were kind of nice to solve because this would, would kind of uh, um, resolve the dilemma we would have with temperature measuring uh, satellites, which at this time I knew not so much about. Uh, but was a good was a good feeling. We didn't win in the end. Um, what's interesting that we wrote into the proposal that we're going to found a startup just to increase our chances because the winning criteria was is there a startup coming out of this? And we said <laughs> obviously we don't want to do that we want to do it because it's way too risky. But we nevertheless said a client will do so. Um, little did I know. So we ended up being in the finals and then we got a mentor and uh, we got into the Copernicus Accelerator. We said, yeah, it can't be too bad. It's probably like a like a workshop in communications that you have uh, as proud of for two. And um, it already got us a bit antsy. It's like, oh, this is really interesting. Maybe we can do something like this. We we still try to realize everything in terms of frown of a project. But we then found that Fraunhofer, as as nice as it is, was not the right growing ground for this kind of idea because it was too early and we didn't really have so at least with the means we had at the time, it was not possible for us to get enough financing to actually do it. Um, and then, yes, uh, F days or the Fraunhofer accelerator came along and we said, OK, that's 13 weeks. We, we spoke to our supervisor, said, yeah, come on, go. Um, then we had a chat with you. You remember and we were all, all skeptics and highly energetic. Yes, but also super skeptic about this whole thing and had absolutely no clue what was going to uh, was going to happen. We said, OK, after 13 weeks, we're going to do an assessment. Um, let's take this another week. So by the end of the year, we would know if this is the road we want to go, if we take this risk or not, if you want to uh, incorporate and so on and so forth. And about 45 minutes into the first session of the accelerator, we're all screaming, okay, we're going to incorporate, we're going to incorporate. So completely brainwashed. Um, and since then, it was a fantastic ride. Obviously, you have your, your ups and downs, but um, it is the first time where I feel that this purpose, which, which is driving me, is actually coming into play in, in a way which makes sense. And that is the rewarding part of, of being a founder, not necessarily the, the freedom and you don't have a boss anymore in that sense. I mean, you, you're still subjected to whatever the market says and, and all the other things. And yes, but the really nice thing is that you wake up in the morning and you know what you're working for. And that is a great feeling, which I so far didn't have anywhere else, neither at university nor at Fraunhofer. So this was a very lengthy expose of <laughs> why I'm a part of it. It's um, that's the that's how I developed.
That's, that's awesome. Yes, you answered about three of my follow-up questions already, but that's that's <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. I, I love the journey from from research, like closely inching more and more towards the 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 application, and then and just creating yourself the the situations that 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 trigger that. Um, when did you see yourself as an entrepreneur? Like, was there a moment or something when you sort of like actually shifted into that role? It was like, I'm not a researcher anymore. I'm an entrepreneur now. Are you still a researcher? Like, how is that sort of, because I'm sure that heart is still beating inside of you. I'm sure you love yes. the technology. Yeah, I, I do love, I do love the technology. And um, it is very hard letting go of that. Uh, not not about the love for technology, but actually doing the technology and being here um having a more operational function in making it make, making it to 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 work so that is something it's, it's a good question it's a tough question i would claim that when we started to grow as a company and i had to go more and more into let's say management uh, position or more more organizing representing the company and looking after the company's growth uh, compared to programming co or, or coding compared to really building stuff that's when I realized that I basically have to wave goodbye, at least for a couple of years now, um, the, the researcher um, ambitions in me, because that's that's frankly not what I'm doing anymore. Um, I'm missing it sometimes a little bit. Sometimes I'm, we had a hackathon uh, beginning of this year, and I was like, this was kind of my farewell hackathon. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, I'm missing it, but it's also very rewarding building something else, and it's a new experience. And um, whereas my, my feeling is that um, I feel rather safe and comfortable in the scientific world. Sometimes I'm not feeling that that comfort yet in, in the world I'm currently in, in this entrepreneurial world, because there's so much more to learn. But then also the gradient of developing yourself is steeper, and that is that is something I'm I'm really after. So um, yes, missing it sometimes. Had to wave goodbye. I would say Q3, Q4 last year. Uh, that, that's when I kind of realized it. But um, yeah, you get something in return, and that, that's nice too. So, so let's see what the future brings. You just mentioned there's a there's a lot of new things to learn. Do you have people you look up to, role models, anyone else building a company that you can learn from? Yes, uh, I mean we have a lot of mentors and coaches which help us in, in terms of uh, management, communication, how to present ourselves, or also in terms of how to structure ourselves, in terms of time management. Uh, about all these little things you, you need to know, you suddenly are confronted with contracts, which I, has never been the case for me. I'm really bad reading contracts and I suddenly have to do it every now and then. Uh, you, you're suddenly on the other side uh, when you uh, in interviews um, and job application interviews. So suddenly you are the one hiring people and it is more difficult than I thought. But all these things you kind of learn as you go and you learn them because you need to. And as long as you're open to that, that's good. In terms of the role model, it would be very cliche to say it's Elon. It is not Elon. But this is this is very personally me. I never had a favorite football club or soccer club. I never had a favorite, I don't know, race driver, Formula One driver, a former, uh, uh, my favorite, I never had a favorite sportsman or a scientist or anything. I liked a lot of them, but I was never a fan of, of a single person. And that's maybe a, a character trait. Maybe, maybe it's a, a bit of narcissism. But um, no, but uh, that's, I, I don't have an idol where I, where I say, okay, I would like to develop into that person or close to that person. It's more like I have my own way. And um, as long as I'm happy with it, why I'm enjoying it, then, then it's okay. But I'm kind of taking bits and parts of certain certain people um, to uh, inspire me. But as I would have to build a completely new person out of bits of existing persons to, to um, uh, find that role. 
Very cool. You already said like you, you get up in the morning and you're, you're excited about what you do. Like, where does that motivation come from? Is it, is it the problem you're solving? Is it the, the technology you're playing with? Is it the people? Like, what are the, the factors that really drive that motivation? Where does your motivation come from? It actually shifted a little bit over the, um, over the past, over the course of the past uh, few years. So initially it was a strong drive with simply the technology. I wanted to let this thing fly because I was believing in technology. And the more and more I got in use or got in touch with the actual problems it could solve and the challenges it could help to overcome, um, the motivation shifted. And um, my personal motivation, there's there are two sides of it. On the one hand side, it's the bigger picture. Um, it is the, okay, we need 30% more food in the next, 50% uh, more food, sorry, in the next 30 years. And where is it going to come from? And then we see on the other hand, okay, our technology could basically do a big chunk of that. Uh, maybe six to to ten percent of that could be delivered with the same resources by applying our technology. So that is an awesome feeling, because if you translate it, it means that we could provide sustainable food um, uh, or helping our technology would help provide sustainable food for six hundred million people, and that is a great feeling. And um, that's the one hand side. Yeah, it's it sometimes careful to let. It's difficult to let go because. Um, when you're in the evening, you're, you're tired, you're writing a proposal and you're like, okay, I just don't want to go anymore. I want to go to sleep. And then someone knocks on the, the back of your head and says, hey, but what are the 600 million people saying now? <laughs> they, don't, they don't want you to go to sleep. So it's difficult sometimes to let go. But there's also a personal motivation to it. And this personal, is, it's maybe more egoistic. But obviously, I would like to be on a planet which is nice and which doesn't have all these crises. And I want my children, my, my wife and uh, all my extended family to live on the same planet. So... Um, it is something which is, yes, maybe partially altruistic, uh, but also part, partially egoistic because I want to live in a nice place too. And that's what's, what's getting me up in the morning. So think about, okay, can we make a positive impact and can we make this place a better place? It's already a pretty nice place, at least in most parts, uh, but can we make it even better for the generations to come? Very cool. You've, you've talked a lot about we, and I want to go into some of the, the other people around you building building Constellar. I mean, it's it's built upon IP that you created at, at Fraunhofer Amy. You've left the research group there. Um, also, those separations don't always go as smoothly as we as we might like. Um, but let's let's talk about that part of the process. And let's let's start with the people, um, because you said, of course, you work on the technology with a couple of people. You said we wrote like the application for the Copernicus program, etc. But they're not all automatically now your co-founders. Like, how did that process go about? Like, how did you figure out who are the co-founders and and who are not co-founders who are not part of the team? Um, so, in the end, most of this initial idea came from two people, and it was Marius, who is co-founder and CTO, and and myself. Um, so, in that sense. All the technologically relevant people, at least core people, are already inside the company. But of course, we are we've been working on basically on the shoulders of what has been done before us in the satellite mission. So there are a lot of people from the um, from the department and the individual groups which have also their their share um, in in this development. Sometimes the share is not so much in technology as in the general support they gave us by allowing us to work on this, even though. We could have worked on other projects by supporting us going to this accelerator program um, and so on and so forth. So there's a um, there's this part of it. Then we also work together with with partners from other companies. Um, OHB, for example, was a was a core partner, which uh, brought a lot of this space know how uh, that the, I think the largest satellite integrator in Germany and third largest in Europe. And they brought a lot of the space know how we didn't have at the time 
into this thing and basically looked at it from the feasibility point of view. Um, and initially, obviously, there, there were more challenges than there are now, but there was new challenges. But in, in general, they're basically kind of the, the angel looking at it and saying, okay, uh, maybe this is this is a bit too optimistic uh, to do it this and that way. Maybe think about this and that approach instead. And um, building this trust and this working relationship over the years, and now also seeing that uh, they, they become one of our investors. And we now have a, a very deep cooperation with them too um, on the working level. That is something where we also kind of build someone who's not maybe not a co-founder in that sense, um, but build someone from the very close ecosystem into our ecosystem now. And um, again, here, full disclosure in terms of uh, Fraunhofer, I'm still paid by Fraunhofer. We have the Exist Technology Transfer Program, and I'll be paid by Fraunhofer until the, um, I think, 30, 31st of July of next year, before completely moving into the startup. So we have the, the fantastic situation that we can leverage for really, really good, let's say, um, not easy to get, but easy to manage uh, grant funding to let the company grow. Um, the process itself is, yeah, it's, I would say overall it's a very positive experience. But obviously, um, and this is due to our own inexperience with this process, as well as on the front of a side, there are a couple of things which could be improved. Um, initially, when we came back with this idea, we met kind of two different um, expectations. The one expectation was, oh, these guys are going through the roof. Next year, they're going to collect 100 million and that's it. Um, awesome. Okay, let's support them. The other one is like, ah, oh, that's never going to fly. No, no chance. Why? I mean, look at them. They're, they're not even department or group leader or something. Um, so no, no way that's going to fly. And um, I, I'm seeing the problem here that if they're working on this thing, they're not going to work on my projects anymore. And so they're kind of mooching off time, which I don't really like. So we kind of had these two expectations and they were in different levels in the Institute. Now, okay, and it was very difficult to, to manage these expectations because on the one hand side, you get pushed. On the other hand, someone is like rather pulling the brakes on it. And that is um, that was uh, difficult to resolve uh, and it took quite some time and there were ups and downs. So wherever we had positive news, um, everybody was uh, euphoric. And then whenever we had negative news, um, and which, which obviously happens, then suddenly the, the whole idea was bad again and it would never work. And so it was kind of an up and down, like a very emotional relationship sometimes. Um, it was, however, important for us to get the, to, to know the right people at the Institute and to get their support relatively quickly. And that's something, a general advice. Um, if we haven't had this, this direct contact to the um, management uh, level, I, it would have been a lot more difficult because we kind of really um, <laughs> used whatever, we, we tested out the boundaries of what is possible and what not. And um, this was not always well received, obviously. That's the one process. The, the next process was then, and that's always the difficult question with Frown of an IP. And here again, there's a, there was a big clash. Um, and there, there was a clash on several levels. Uh, we had an agreement with the Institute. We had an, this was actually um, moderated uh, also by Frown of a Venture uh, to, to get someone in there which has a bit of experience. And um, we thought, okay, we're actually quite good. We're quite happy with this agreement and all the sides were happy. And then we tried to rephrase that into a legal context. So basically we want to have a license um, agreement. And that's when lawyers came in. And then we found out that there's actually no agreement within Fraunhofer how to work on this process. Um, and uh, the lawyer, which from my point should have been someone basically check um, the legal feasibility and um, also try to check on, okay, is it, is it, yeah, it doesn't make sense what they're doing. Kind of took a very active role uh, in defining what, in his uh, opinion, is right and not right. 
And interestingly enough, this caused a lot of stir. In, in the end, we ended up with the same numbers as before, more or less. But it was a lot of distrust in between. And um, this, this whole process managed to really uh, damage the relationship between the institute and the startup. I think it is now halfway repaired again. Um, but this was, was a very tough experience that suddenly we are sitting with people which we know for a long time and work together. And I would consider friends, most of them. And we're now sitting on the opposite sides of the table, which so far we were able to, um, to somehow uh, maneuver around in, in a harmonic way. And now suddenly they have a vastly different opinions, even though we have agreed on something else. And out of, out of basically getting pushed in a certain direction from someone who's actually no stake in that whatsoever. And then we felt that the, the whole IP process in Fraunhofer and how to deal with startups, with our own startups, at least from my perspective, could have been vastly improved. And we lost a lot of time on that. And I know from other startups that it, they had a similar journey. So here, I believe um, we need to open up to more discussion, uh, let's say more, more discussion friendly, more transparent uh, uh, kind of way how to deal with these things, because otherwise we're throwing away a lot of opportunities. And that's something which I've also seen in, in the accelerator program. Uh, please stop me if I'm going too far. Um, but the, the, the point here is, We've seen so many amazing ideas. We've been not only to Fraud of Accelerator, but to others too. And it's the, 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 the width and breadth of these ideas, it's, it's, it is fantastic. And you feel like if only one-tenth of these ideas, or let's say ideally all of them, are, are realized, we have a real advantage and we could make a real, real difference. And then there's the politics and the legal side of it. And a lot of these ideas get killed on the way, not because they're not good ideas, not because they don't work, but because little things, they can't agree on a, I don't know, um, on the revenue share or um, it, the, the process just taking so long that they kind of die on the way because they're out of money. And the investors say, well, as long as you don't have a licensing deal, we're not going to give you any money because we don't know in what we're investing. So this is a problem. We, we see so much wasted potential. And that is something which I would urge. So if anybody from Fraunhofer, who is in the respective department and listening, I would urge you to really consider your processes and get in touch with the startups. We're not Siemens. We're not IBM. Um, and you have the biggest benefit if you help us, if you don't try to, let's say, um, deal the same way with us as you do with any other large corporation. That's not going to help us. And it's definitely, if you are dying, it's not going to help you either. What would be some some tips to to approach it? Like, how, how could one solve that? Um, and maybe let's take another step back, because... Um, how do you even decide what IP you need in the first place? Because on, on the other hand, there's like a lot of investors just advising research spinoffs, like don't take the IP, just sort of start again from scratch. It might be faster than going through a negotiation with your research organization or university um, versus obviously there's there's something you've built, you've created together. Um, is there like what parts do I need in the first place? How do I decide? And what are tips to to go into that negotiation if you do? Yes. Um... So if you can avoid a negotiation, that's obviously um, a strong point. Um, but this negotiation is also creating a tie between um, the institutes and the startup, which can be leveraged in other ways too. So um, yes, you would probably have to give away part of the revenue. Um, but what I'm seeing too is it can create, if it's done the right way, it can create opportunities on both sides. Obviously, for the institutes, I'm, I'm, I'm not expert on this IP, um, uh, IPR in, in Fraunhofer, but I would imagine that only a fraction of the patents are actually bringing revenue. So for the, Fraun for the Fraunhofer Society, it is a large opportunity to actually get something for their IP. Um, and it's a large opportunity 
to directly connect with someone who has industry, um, uh, who then is industry eventually, and kind of have a have a foot in, in, in to the market or one foot in the market. Um, so that is a big opportunity on this side. On the other hand, yes, how to decide on which IP to take and which not to take? Um, it is difficult. You have to you have to understand what you need to do quite well, and then you also have to understand: is it only possible with this IP, or do I need to create more IP, or can it? Can I do it completely without this IP and use a different route? And that's something you have to be secure about. So I think it's a initially it's a technology question and it's a technology roadmap question, but it also has the strategic angle because do I want to bind the institute to me and the other way around? Because as you can also see it from the startup, if you have a large research company at your back, which is um, not only supporting you with their name, but you can also let's say mitigate a lot of your own risk using that um, and to the benefit of both. So let's say you're going into a research process together and you're applying for research money, be it Horizon 2020 or something else, they usually get 100% funded. So you can, um, let's say, put part of the risky activities in the hands of the institute. Ideally, you know them quite well and know the capabilities quite well. And um, this means that uh, if it fails, it is not your own money, um, which, is, which is basically, it's not, not, so, not so much of a financial burden for you. So you can do risk mitigation by this. Um, I know this is not really answering the question how to choose it and how not to choose it, but this is a very individual question, which is it's very difficult to answer. What I can recommend is uh, getting in touch with someone who has done this before and getting in touch with someone who has a bit of a broad IP, um, uh, let's say the, the legal side as well as technology side overview and can tell you if this is worthwhile or not. Um, but generally, I think IP obviously is, is important. And... Um, before throwing everything overboard and saying, ah, oh, you know what, I start from scratch. Maybe think twice and see, okay, what do we actually need? And in this process, that's a healthy process by itself, trying to figure out how to circumvent your own patterns, maybe, or is there, is there another way how to do it to approach it? Um, you either uh, create a more str a stronger patent family, um, or you, you find, uh, let's say, caveats, which you might not have seen before. In, generally, in general, I would say, there's no right or wrong, but keep in mind that whatever process you're doing, it has to be relatively quick. And if it's 18 months or 24 months of negotiation, then I would say don't do it. Um, if you actually have to do it because it's a core pattern, there's absolutely no other way how to do it, um, then yes, then it's important. But then also expect that Fraudov will know this too, and the conditions might not be super favorable. Some countries or, or universities have standard agreements for their, for their research spinoffs. Is that... That's something that would have helped, or do you think it it can't sort of, yeah, encompass the whole picture of, of IP and the different situations? I, I mean, there's, there's certainly situations where this this can be helped uh, if you develop software together um, or use cases. I, I'm not sure um, if it is applicable to every use case, but I definitely would think such a such a template would help. What I also would, would think would help even more is a general change of mindset. Because the general mindset is, oh, I need to squeeze as much out of this deal as possible. That is at least what, what arrived at, at my end. And that was something we were not going into because we were trying to explore what is the biggest common benefit, the biggest joint benefit we could have together. And if you are if one, one side is arguing from this position, the other one is arguing from, okay, how can I milk this cow before it's even born? Um, that is something which is not really working well. So my general advice would be take a step back and think, what are you gaining? What are you gaining and what are you not gaining if it's not happening? Um, and look at your statistics. How many of the patents are actually creating revenues? How many is not? How many are not? And maybe go a little, even a step further and say, 
not only what I'm gaining commercially in terms of financial value from this, but what am I gaining in terms of strategic partnership, in, in terms of marketing, in terms of attractiveness to new, um, uh, uh, to new talent, in terms of attractiveness to market in general, in terms of how I position myself in the market, that I could open, um, you could see a startup as a, like a mini research arm or mini commercialization arm um, of the Institute, which is doing something in a rapid prototyping type of way, and you can quickly explore things. And all these opportunities are kind of difficult to quantify, but they're definitely there. And we see that with our own Institute, they are highly benefiting from some of these things. Um, however, obviously, that's something which is very difficult to, to put a number to, and therefore it might be considered inappropriate to put in a, in a license agreement as a soft factor of why this would be a good idea. But instead of seeing the risk, seeing the opportunity, same as for startups, this would be a very good thing. And I remember that um, one of the first arguments I heard from the lawyer we had been was like, hey, you know what? These guys are going to write themselves um, a six or seven uh, digit check every year anyways. And I know this. And for that reason, we can milk them. And it's like this, this argument was not only crazy, it was really, 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 um, it was on a completely different level, namely a personal level. It has nothing to do with that. So it's nothing to do with the process of licensing out. So really being professional about it and um, yeah, making trying to put on different goggles and not only looking at, okay, what's the direct uh, quantification in terms of monetary value I can get out of this, but what can I get as an overall and it be, might be something completely else, which I might be able to, to get out of it. Looking from this angle would be helpful. Yeah. How can this be mutually beneficial for both sides? Basically looking at yeah. it from that angle. Um, you already mentioned a bunch of accelerators you've been in. You mentioned exist currently still paying your salary. You've got VCs um, on board in your first financing round. Like, How do you go about all that sort of different levels of support? When How do you do, did you decide which is the right thing at what stage um, or what could be tips on, on approaching that, that landscape? Yes. So... Um... You first need to know where you're going. This was the, the most difficult part for us to try to anticipate where are we realistically in half a year from now, in a year from now, in two years from now, in five years from now. And once you start building that roadmap, which took a, an amazing effort because we simply weren't used to it, to think in that long term and also on the one hand side, long term, on the other hand, relatively detailed. Um, and on also taking into account all these bifurcations which could happen. And then uh, let's uh, assume this scenario or that scenario. Um, it is... Uh, Let's say if you're in software development, um, you have this exploration phase, and then usually you're very agile in this exploration phase. You're trying this thing, and then you're dropping again, you're building MVP, you're dropping again. So um, initially, I would say try things out. Try things out and try to find out what is working for you. Once you have a more concrete plan, you cannot waste so much energy anymore to go left and right, but you have to be laser focused on that plan. And um, this is uh, the second part. So this is where you really need to to uh, attach yourself to a roadmap and try to make it uh, uh, to make it happen. So the general, uh, it's difficult to give a, a, a general hint on how to do it because every startup will be different. Um, but the idea is to be aware of um, two things. The first thing is, as I said, the roadmap. And this is not only commercial roadmap and not only, a, a, I dream this would be my roadmap, but a, a kind of realistic um, roadmap. And um, this is <clears throat> technology-wise, in terms of talent-wise, in, in, in terms of talent, in terms of, team in general, how to grow, also a team of financial need, and really ask yourself, if I would do this and that, 
what would this help me? And is this within the focus or is this something purely opportunistic? Because I know I can get 100K from, from this site, but does it really help me in where I want to go or not? So really making this assessment, you can decision matrices, for example, for every proposal we are, we are tackling or we're not tackling, where we use the decisions, we have a decision matrix um, and we take, okay, how, 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 again, the physicist approach, um, say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. how, how uh, well is this supporting us in terms of marketing? Can we get a new client from that? Is there price money attached? How well is it fitting our overall strategy and so on and so forth? And then if you get a number, above a certain number of points, you do it. If not, then you don't do it. It's a very easy process you can establish and um, it helped us uh, quite a bit. Um, this is the one hand side. And the, the other hand is try to, if I, if I look back into the past, I see how I'm evolving up to the point where I'm now, hopefully in a good way. But I see there's some kind of evolution. And usually if I, if I project myself in the future, I kind of, I'm, it's a stacked picture. It's still me, yeah, less hair or gray hair or, or um, I, I don't know, something else, but it's still me with the same kind of talents and skills and so on and so forth. And I think you have to um, think a bit out of that, outside the box. You have to think about, okay, I'm, I'm able to do certain things today. What would I be able to do in a year from now, given the right amount of training? And then this is the kind of level um, you would need to set your goals to. Right now, I, I can't control a constellation. I can't guide a 300 or 500,000 people company. But maybe in a couple of years from now, I'm ca I can. And th that's the whole thing. So try to see how you personally would need to evolve to make this happen. Thanks so much. I want to honor your time, but maybe because you threw in the word roadmap and, and laser focus, give us like the, the 30 second outlook to like, what are the next milestones for Constella? Where's the, where's the big vision and, and how can people okay. maybe follow what you do? Yeah. Um, right now what we're doing is actually growing a lot of corn in the, in the office. <laughs> and I just heard that we got ants. So uh, that's, a, that's a little challenge, uh, backtracking if you like. Um, so we try to find, uh, to, to test our um, hardware in the lab. Uh, in August, mid-August, we're going to fly an airplane uh, with our hardware to basically see how it's performing uh, in a semi-relevant environment. Um, we're going to publish our data platform openly. Right now, it's in a closed beta um, in about, uh, I would say, September or October this year. Um, and that's definitely you can you can follow. If you're interested in this, these data sets, um, contact me and I'll be able to uh, send you test data sets if you qualify. Uh, it's uh, info at consular.space. And if you um, then follow us uh, beginning next year, we'll have the launch on the, launch on the 1st of February, 2022. And from then on, we'll be really delivering data from space. So that's going to be super exciting. And about 15 months later, we're going to launch the first five satellites. Obviously, they're not yet financed, uh, but I'm rather confident that we can do so. Super exciting. Thanks a lot for your time, Max. It has been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you too, Annalena. And uh, good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye.